flashy fight scenes and stories about saving the world are great. But while they have their place, sometimes it's nice to read more personal stories about friendship, identity, and trying to do better. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with science fiction author Mike Chen. His latest book is We Could Be Heroes, out next week from Mira Books. Mike and I discuss how to make the most of the Save the Cat plotting method, tricks to writing compelling and natural dialogue, and the thrill of writing for an official Star Wars story. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get to the part you came here for. Welcome to the Fantasy End, Mike. It's great to have you here today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, as such a big Star Wars fan, how does it feel to have your name on a Star Wars book? Especially since this is the kind of book you can find in like non-book stores like Target, Walmart, things like that. I did see it in Target the other day, and this is my first time having like uh, anything that I've written in Target. So that was very exciting. Uh, picking up prescriptions for my wife. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to walk over here and... There it was. Um, it's it, it's it's still kind of hard to comprehend. Um, like and and I know it's it's you know I'm one author out of forty, so it's it's not quite the same as having you know my own book in the space. But to to have contributed to to the canon in a really significant way, when a lot of the stories in the the anthology is from a certain point of view, the Empire Strikes Back. So it. it, it it takes the Empire Strikes Back and chronologically inserts different points of view through there. But I got Palpatine, and I got to write about a very, very important moment in canon. Um, and I was shocked that they let me do it. So um, it, it's it's still a bit unbelievable, really. Yeah, there's times I just think about it and I just grin like an idiot because it's 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 for a kid who grew like I was born in 1978, so I grew up with the original trilogy. I grew up with the Zahn books. Like I remember when those came out and and my best friend and I went to Walden books to pick them up and they had like the movies playing on their VHS, you know, the TV that they wheeled in and everything. I mean, like the special editions were just like this gigantic thing for like us nerds in college. So it was like the accumulation of, of my Star Wars nerddom, like it's definitely been like a lifelong thing. So for it to actually happen like this is, is pretty incredible. Yeah. And uh, like you were saying, Palpatine, that's uh, not some minor character or anything. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, when I pitched it, I had actually prepared several pitches and most of them were background characters for different scenes and they all would have been really cute, you know, side stories. But then I'm like, I saw the list of who was available because they'd been, I think working with authors for three or four months at that point. And I was brought in midway through the process. Uh, and I, I saw the list of who was available and I thought, why hasn't anyone taken Palpatine yet? Um, and, and so when I, I, I submitted the, the pitch for it and then later I found out, like I was talking to Jason C. Fry and he said that he actually thought about doing Palpatine, but he was worried that he would screw it up. And uh, someone else, someone else said that too. I think it was Charles Yu um, or one of the other uh, fairly big authors thought about it. And I think like everyone, everyone was just kind of intimidated by the weight of Palpatine. And I was too, but I also had the idea that like, I may never get to write Star Wars again. 
So if I'm going to do it, just, you know, go big or go home. So that that's really where, what it was. It was like, I, I, I might only have a sliver, you know, 5,000 words to establish myself in Star Wars canon. So I'm going to make it a, as important as possible. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to picking that book up, especially because there are so many, like the collection of authors they got for that anthology is just amazing. Like I was reading through the list and there was like so many incredible names on there. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really great. I mean, like, so it, becoming part of the science fiction and fantasy community over the past few years, I was kind of prepared for it to be like, you know, the stereotypes of like, you know, just not being very inclusive. But I have found that um, I think like all of the authors who came who came up like probably like five years before when my debut and then like this current crop. So like that, that time period, probably like the 2010s on, it's a really diverse group and they've been very welcoming and very friendly and not gatekeepy at all. And, and I think this particular uh, anthology actually reflects a lot of that. A lot of the authors who've really, who really had a lot of success over the past 10 years and also some who are just regular Star Wars authors. And so to look at that list, and I personally know maybe like about 15 of them or so, and to know they're all really, really good people, in addition to being really, really good writers, is it, it's really cool. It feels like, you know, there's, there's this uh, um, willing shift in high profile, um, high profile intellectual property to, to just get, a new crop of writers in there. Yeah, and uh, as just a reader, I really appreciate that as well. I think recently we've had an explosion of great authors in the community and by extension, amazing stories. Uh, so I, it's definitely a good time to be a fan of genre fiction, I think. Yeah, I was, I, actually, I was, I've been asked quite a bit about, because um, I've ta talked quite publicly about my first book, um, Here and Now and Then. It was, it was a time travel book that came out in January of 2019. And it was actually like in the the business side of things. It was actually on submission, which is where my your agent takes it out to editors, and they look at it and they decide whether or not they want to buy it. Typically, a book is on submission um, usually for like four to six months, sometimes up to a year. And mine was on submission for close to two years, and um, it had it went to like the final decision five times. And the first four times, it was we were told. It's either too literary to be science fiction or too science fiction to be literary, depending on which imprint we um, was reading it. And I think that has really shifted. There's a crop of books that came up between like 2017 and my debut in 2019 um, that really kind of started to push uh, the needle for acceptance for for this type of like more literary based science fiction, and, and it's really carrying. I think that the the mark was really made by like the time traveler's wife and station 11. Those are like the big things that, that, that showed the, the commercial fiction and literary fiction presses that they could do a little bit more genre stuff. And I think gradually since then, there's been a little bit of a more acceptance. And then around 2015, 2017, that's when things like the dam kind of broke and and you're starting to see a lot more of these books. So I, I think science fiction as a whole, in terms of um, accepting different types of books, and that usually comes from different types of authors, has really opened up. And, and that's really, really great because that's what I like to read. Well, taking a step back for a moment, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction? 
So that's a really good question because I, it's funny. My wife is a bit science fiction and fantasy person, and I am really more science fiction. Like there's very few epic fantasy or pure fantasy stuff that I, I really, really like. And I remember as a kid even feeling that way. Like The Legend of Zelda on Nintendo, that was cool, but I never quite understood why people obsessed over it. But I loved Metroid. Uh, and I thought Metroid was just freaking amazing. And it's like, you know, there's lasers and weapon upgrades and aliens and stuff. And it always felt that way where like from a comic level, from a TV show level and from a video game level, the fantasy stuff would be like, oh, that's that's kind of cool. You know, that that's interesting. But then set it in space and I instantly loved it. Uh, so I, I never quite understood what it was. Um, I do have a very scientific brain. I, I have an engineering degree and the, the, uh, process of like thinking about why something happens that always intrigues me, but I, I don't, I'm not sure if that's necessarily connected to my love of science fiction. I think I just like things being in space, <laughs> space or, or, you know, having some sort of technology, behind it um i think part of it is like it feels a little bit more grounded than fantasy yeah so it, it's interesting it's like it's just been something that's been in my life my entire life my dad is a big star trek fan of the original series and i think that i might have absorbed some of that by osmosis because um uh when i was really young like i thought it was cheesy and like i, I didn't really appreciate star trek until uh the next generation but i think like because i was constantly exposed to it that might have had something to do with it too yeah that makes sense for sure yeah i do wonder because I, I tend to lean the opposite way more towards fantasy than science fiction but this year in particular i've actually been reading a lot more science fiction than i normally do and some of it i think for me is like an entryway like the the genre boundaries keep breaking down um so i know like there's like fantasies set in space or mm -hmm. like yeah. i guess star wars in general like some people argue like oh that's fantasy because you got these space wizards running around mm -hmm. yeah exactly um, but like yeah it's very interesting how those break down yeah and i think part of that is coming from um science fiction at least from a, a publishing perspective there's that bigger breakdown of genre walls over the past few years, like you're starting to see more genre blends, not just between science fiction and contemporary, but like science fiction and fantasy, science fiction and romance, all sorts of different types of things where um, they probably wouldn't have been accepted by a, a, a major publisher like 15 to 20 years ago. But there's a significant push to to actually move that way now. And I think that's great because like, the, more, the more diversity you get in your books, I think the more readers you can draw in and thus the more writers and storytellers you can create. Well, so three books in and you've developed somewhat of a reputation for the sci-fi with feels guy as a writer. So why do you think this is the kind of story that appeals to you? You know, it's funny. I, I do think this type of story has actually been in my blood since the very beginning of, of reading and fandom. When I was really young, I would draw my own like comic strips um, and they were all fan fiction-y comic strips, but rather than making like epic battles of like, you know, the rebels taking on death star number three or something like that, it was always taking like a side character and just like seeing what they were doing during their day. Like, you know, what are they talking about in the mess hall? Like that sort of stuff. So I think that sort of 
more character driven, like slice of life type of thing has always really, really appealed to me. And when I see it in movies or TV, even if it was just a scene, that would always really appeal to me. Like that would just scratch that itch. Like um, I'm thinking uh, in, in the second X-Men movie, um, when Wolverine is talking to Iceman about like their powers and stuff right before Stryker invades with his, his army of mercenaries, it's like, yeah, you get your big set piece where Wolverine goes full Wolverine on everyone. But there's like five minutes before where it's like this really intimate character moment. And, that's the kind of thing that really appeals to me and sticks with me. I, I remember the um, one of my biggest inspirations for just writing that type of thing is the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Lower Decks. And because it, that's the one where you, you follow four different ensigns through their day and you see how like one of them is just totally intimidated by Riker. And, you know, we love Riker because he's, you know, we see him every episode, but to see that sort of slice of life of what people are actually going through, that sort of stuff just appeals to me a little bit more than the actual epic action. Uh, and I'm not sure why, but <laughs> so that's just the kind of story that I wind up writing. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with you. I know I used to be the kind of guy who could like watch a show on TV or watch a movie or something. And I was like, I was all about the explosions and the fight battles and all of like the crazy stuff. Uh, but now like those are the parts that are most likely to lose my attention or even like put me to sleep potentially. Uh, loud yeah. noises aside, I, I'm really here for the character moments. And, and I think to like you'll find that the stuff that lasts the the stuff that you know really has longevity in readership or viewership or a fandom is the stuff where the characters shine much more than the um than the actual like gratuitous violence um because the violence can be recreated especially now with cg like it's so easy to recreate like you know even amateur uh, CG artists can just make their own really cool action scenes. But if you don't have heart to back it up, it's just going to kind of get lost in the void. You know, I tend to be more character than action. And I understand why some people appreciate action. But I think in the end, for something to last beyond like that immediate sensory input, it really has to have like a lasting character moment. Okay, so stepping aside briefly from science fiction, I know sci-fi is far from your only experience with professional writing. Uh, you were a hockey blogger for over a decade, eventually writing some pretty mainstream news outlets like Fox Sports. Uh, so what got you started with blogging? Um, so it was, it was the early days of internet media. Um, and so not a lot of people had blogs. <laughs> so when you did have one, um, and th this gets technical because my, my, my day job involves like uh, search engine optimization and, and data analytics and things like that. So I, I'm, I'm still kind of involved with that end of, of it. But like in the early days, uh, and that really dates me, like in the early 2000s to mid 2000s, there just wasn't nearly as much content as there was now. And like the amount, the volume of that has like literally gone exponentially year by year so if you if you wrote something about any topic and you were consistent and the quality was good enough then like people eventually found you just by general search um and then like people would uh the community would grow and people would link to each other and there was a crop of us that kind of came up around the same time between i think 2002 and like 2007 and it's interesting that a lot of a lot of the people that stuck with it 
during that time uh, got absorbed into the mainstream and like one person now freelances for the hockey news. One person's over at ESPN. One person um, was like the head editor of the athletic. So these, these people, <laughs> and we're all still kind of in touch too. So it's like when one of us hits a new career milestone, we'll, we'll message each other. But uh, so it was just a lot of, uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of content there. And so it, it was just easier to kind of cut through the noise at the time. I would say one of the nice things about growing up as a fan in the nineties and then having the internet explode and being, so seeing both sides of that divide, having things go, go from like message boards where they're very self-contained to like blogs and websites and, and your own personal like social media outlet I really appreciate it. Like, I know like this kind of brought some chaos to, <laughs> to our lives through social media and stuff, but the democratization of, of quality content and, and how people just kind of organically find something that's good. I mean, it's not everything, like some things do get overlooked, but I think the possibility of, uh, you know, if you put your time and effort into it, whether it's like, you know, deviant art or, or Etsy or blogs, um, you know, a- any sort of, like creative community, there's such so much more potential out there. And I think that's, that's really a great thing. Um, you know, that, that we have access to, to so much more and it's giving people the opportunity to not just be like, Oh, I'm only going to talk to like my little community of 10 people. It's like, no, you, whatever you love, you can, if you put effort into it, there's a potential for it to re- be really seen and appreciated by a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, I guess, for introverts like me, thankfully, on the flip side, there's also, it seems like, a move back towards, like, those online message boards or chat rooms. Like, I know Discord is a big one where a lot of people have small groups of basically, like, your AIM chat room or something like that now. Uh, in addition to the, like, broadcast to the thousands or, uh, like me, hundreds of followers you might have. I, I think that's important, too, because it's... Uh, uh... I, I have my own like private chats with um, different groups of friends and like, it's nice to be able to say things in an insulated <laughs> way. Um, so I, I think like the, the, the fact that we kind of have the capacity for both. And the, I think the fact that people are appreciating long form blogs uh, like or writing medium posts or um, you know, doing, doing something more than just the, the quick Twitter hit um, I think that the fact that people are really promoting like, you know, their Substack newsletters and other things, I think that's really good. I, I, it's, it feels like it's kind of hitting more of an equilibrium now that we've seen both sides of how we can interact with people on online. And now we're trying to find like a comfortable medium between long form content and like closed personal circles and completely public social media. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely appreciated from me. But yeah, so just as someone who has been in the blogging biz for a while, uh, any advice for that might uh, carry over towards the book blogging industry? I know it's not quite the same as hockey. Um, I mean, there's similar aspects in that um, consistency and quality, like that uh, consistency, quality, and community. And I, I didn't mean to come up with three things that rhyme <laughs> or <laughs> alliterative, <laughs> but um, but that's really true. Um, I, I think it's true to to this day because the thing is, if you enter the community and you build community and and you create content consistently, that community is going to see it. And if you hit a high quality with it, 
then then it'll get shared more often and people will notice. But what, what I have found personally, and I know things are different now from like 2005 when, when I was doing the hockey stuff, but I think a, a lot of it still applies where if you have quality content, then you can pitch to bigger outlets and then attach your, you know, your example posts and be like, see, like, you know, this is my, um, these are my media hits and they're, they're good stuff. So it's proof that I can write. When I shifted from hockey stuff to geek media, this was around like 2013 or so. I, when I started pitching to places and I had no geek media credits, but I had, um, I had my hockey stuff, which I knew showed that, Hey, at least I can be a good writer and I can consciously tell them I'm trying to shift genres and what I cover. And I am a huge geek. And here's my, my idea for a pitch. Here's a bunch of media pieces from both big and small places that show that I can actually write. So I think having that on your resume and having that, um, having that uh, show showcase your abilities allows you to step up faster if you want to. All good advice, I think. So one of your strengths as a writer is crafting like really realistic dialogue. So I was just curious, how do you approach writing dialogue? Is there a specific process you follow? Yeah, everyone has something that comes to them naturally. And dialogue has always been the thing that, that comes to me. Um, even back in um, when I was taking creative writing in college, like uh, my, my teacher noted that the dialogue sounded very natural. And I could always tell like in that class when we were, when we were critiquing and reading each other's pieces and, and critiquing it, I could always identify when, when something sounded stilted or unnatural. So I suppose it's always have, like I've just always had an ear for it, but an exercise that I remember from that class that I found uh, really eye opening was like just sitting in a cafe listening to all the conversations around me and like trying to transcribe them as fast as possible. Because then when you actually write it out, you see the pauses that people take or like the different cadences of their, uh, uh, of how they speak and how some people like they speak in fragments and then like they'll follow up with like just a quick hit of words before going on a giant run on sentence. And that sort of thing where you don't really think about it because we're taught to, to write with proper grammar. And then you realize that people don't speak in proper grammar at all. Um, and no one and, talks that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the George Lucas, <laughs> you can write this shit, but you can't say it. Um, so I think that that's, that's one thing to, to really do. And I think also examine like when movies, um, when the dialogue doesn't sound natural, really you know, sit down and watch something like that where you know the dialogue's not that great. So as much as I adore the Star Wars prequels and the world that has been created by the Star Wars prequels, they are really good <laughs> case study in, in stilted dialogue. Um, and, and part of it really does come from, you know, the, the Jedi... I mean, this goes off on a tangent, but the, the Jedi were representative of like a stilted monk lifestyle at the time. But then the regular people in there talk that way, too. So that's more just George's, you know, inability to write smooth dialogue. But that's a good example of, it, you know, if you watch it and, and maybe like read the script along with it and think, like, what is it about this that does not feel natural? And then on the same, on the flip side, when you have a movie with really great dialogue where it feels like, it, you know, it's just a play unfolding in front of you, break it down and, and see what is it about the, the dialogue that feels really good. Because I find that when I'm writing it, 
it's not just what they say, but it's knowing when to take the pauses in between. Um, and, and if I'm drafting, if I'm drafting like on an early stage draft where like um, it's very skeletal and it's literally just dialogue, I will put in brackets there, like pause for a beat. And then I, I will fill that in later with like, um, like a physical action or a descriptor or something like that. But that's really important too. It's like, when do people take a breath? When do people pause and, and think about something? All of that is just done through observation and then practice. And, and like, for me, you know, it's come a little bit more naturally, but I think anyone can pick it up as long as they observe. Yeah, I like that about pausing for a beat and everything, because I know I've heard before advice is like, oh, if you're going to have filler in between your dialogue, like make it do a certain purpose. But that kind of goes hand in hand or on the flip side of like, where do you put that filler? Right. Like, how do you break up the text around it? Yeah, I, I think one thing that I did that probably helped to that is I did uh, theater in college Um and, and so you kind of work that into how are you going to deliver a line and like, when are you going to take a breath? And I remember when, I don't know if this is actually true or if it's just an urban myth, but we had talked about in, in our college class that like Christopher Walken will take a script and just like put in commas and random places. And that's how he creates like that weird <laughs> cadence of his um, that may or may not be true, but that, that did always stick with me because you think like everyone talks a little differently and just by doing that like as an exercise you can create a completely different field to how dialogue is going to be so reading the dialogue out loud and doing a little exercise like that that lets you i think get in the head of the character and also try to understand how they actually speak um and i, and I like that you're talking about all these breaking things down and studying them because i know uh you're a big proponent of like the save the cat method of plotting out where you've got like your three act structure, you got these specific beats you have to hit and working things in that way. So how did you find Save the Cat and why is it so appealing? My critique partner, um, we we started up together in like 2008 or so and, and we grew as writers together and I think around 2011 or so she found the book because we were both struggling with structure. Like we both had our strengths Actually, both of our strengths are our dialogue, and we were both struggling with structure and trying different books. And then she found that, and that, and then she sent it over to me. And then I looked at it. And I'm like, okay, this makes so much more sense. And I had read Joseph Campbell's Journey of the Hero, so I understood like the the hero arc that he put out. And like we even studied it in high school. And so the, the Save the Cat beat sheet is very very similar to that. It just analyzes each specific moment on a deeper level. So you can look at it from a storytelling perspective rather than like a mythological character journey. So it really works for me because I have, um, well, I mentioned before that like I have an engineered brain. So I like to take things apart and understand why it happens. And then from once I understand it, it's much easier for me to, to start integrating it into whatever I'm doing. I would say save the cat. I don't think it's necessary for everyone because yeah, you know, some people can just sit down and start to write from page one and they write beautiful prose for 150,000 words and it's done. I can't do that. <laughs> I write in, um, I write in layers. So I, I want, first I plot and then I start to write. And then one thing, like I know some people who are plotters and they stick to their plot outline very, very specifically. And I'm kind of in between where if um, if I'm writing a draft 
doing, I'm going through my plot and sometimes my brain will go like, well, what if they chose to go left instead of go right? Um, and then I'll play with that. And if it works better, then I'll stick with it. And they have to revise the entire outline. So I think it's just finding whatever works for you. But if you like structure or if you really struggle with structure and pacing, the Save the Cat beat sheet really helps identify like where are the standard turning points in, in what we expect to be stories, like the, the natural rhythm of stories. And I know there are people who are like, well, it's so stilted that like, uh, you know, we shouldn't adhere to a formula. Um, I think Save the Cat, like three act structure, it's something that, I think it resonates with humans naturally. It's not something like, I don't think three X structure was created on a, like a commercial level, like pushed by like modern movie making or anything like that. It's been around a really long time. Like you could break down, you know, centuries of storytelling with this. So there has to be something in there that's innately connects to our human brain. Um, so understanding that is a good thing. And if you choose to stick to it or you choose to break away from it as a creator, I think that should be a conscious decision. But I think it's really important to understand that, like, you know, this connects with people on a human level. So if you don't want to use it, that's fine. But at least understand what makes it tick. And uh, sorry, brief tangent. I'm just amazed that you said you have an engineering degree, you were doing theater in college, and you were also taking creative writing. So (laughs) I'm just impressed that you had any time at all. Um, it, well, I, I would alternate between writing and theater. Um, like I, 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 they, at my school, they did not offer a theater minor. So I took technically enough classes, like it would be a minor. Um, but I think part of that is me always asking why and wanting to learn more. And also like, like I have like this deep, um, need to like break my cultural stereotype of being like a Chinese engineer dude. Uh, and so like I, I wanted to and I played a lot of music growing up too. Like on, uh, I, I, I grew up doing the stereotypical like piano lessons. And then I discovered guitar when I was a teen. And then it was like, um, you know, that was like my form of rebellion was like diving into the arts when, when my parents wanted me to be like all science. Weren't you in a band? Yeah, I so from 2000 to about 2015, I played in several bands out here in the Bay Area, and I also DJed. and And I had a uh, my wife and I did like this um, indie rock dance night, and it was off and on for several years at different clubs and stuff. So um, we and then like my bands, like they never really played um, anything bigger than like bars and small clubs. But for a while, that was really like my creative outlet was music. And and music is still very, very important to me. And I'm still very much like a music snob. And I'm sorry about the garbage trucks banging outside of my house right now. Um, <laughs> but music is still very, very important to me. I, I actually don't really talk about it that much on social media. And it's, I, it's actually kind of weird to me that like uh, social media, like I talk about video games a lot and like i'm in the geek community quite a bit and i'm still involved with like the hockey community um and i am a huge music nerd too and for some reason like that just does not exist within like my social media sphere but uh so like i've always had some form of creative outlet and i've really tried to um always maintain that and and now like as a parent try to pass that on to my daughter but she does not seem to like playing the guitar at all which is very disappointing (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, well, okay, before we move on too much from Save the Cat, I did see something that you said where uh, Act 2A always gives you the most trouble. Uh, so as someone who is at least passingly familiar with three-act structure, what is Act 2A and why is it so difficult? Oh, okay. So um, three-act structure actually has four parts. So you have Act 1, Act 2A, and then you hit the midpoint where the story kind of inverts on itself, and then Act 2B and then you close that with Act 3. Uh, the midpoint is usually when something either catastrophic happens or a false victory has been, has been um, set up. So um, 2A is, in the Save the Cat, it's called, uh, um, the beat is called fun, on, fun and Games, and it's supposed to deliver the promise of the, the premise you set out from the story. And it's hard for me to write because there's not a lot of meat in there, actually. There's not a lot of, like, hard character moments in there. Like, at the midpoint, the midpoint is really fun to write because that's when you either give your characters a false sense of hope or you take away their hope. And then, like, the the stuff in Act 2B is when, like, things start to get worse. Like, um, think of... um, in the Empire Strikes Back, a perfect example of Act Two B, where where the bad guys close in, is like literally where Lando hands them over to to Vader on Cloud City. Like bad things are happening, and that's fun to write too because you put your characters in all sorts of emotional distress. But Act Two A can be really hard to write because it's like it's just supposed to be kind of fun. It's like for so in my books, uh, so for here and now and then. Act 2A takes place after Ken gets pulled back into uh, his original future, the year 2142. So then the, the, um, I go back to, I think of like, what is the pitch that I'm trying to write? The pitch is a father's trying to raise his daughter across time before bad things happen to them. So Act 2A needs to showcase this. So it, 2A has to fill in Ken trying to reach Miranda and trying to be a father while adjusting to his, his original life in the future. And there's not necessarily like when you just kind of write it out in a sentence is like, there's not a lot of tension in there. So you have to really break it down of like, okay, this is what the expectations are of the story based on the pitch. Like this is when all the setup is done and you're actually involved in like, you know, what's happening in the story, but you have to, you have to give it conflict too. So you have to start like breaking it down into like smaller bits of conflict so that they can do the promise of the premise. So anyway, uh, I struggle with it. <laughs> I'm actually, we, um, we announced the contract for my fifth book, um, tentatively titled Vampire Weekend, which is about vampires and music. I, I can see the music influence in that title. <laughs> yeah. um, I've rough drafted the first act and I've, I've created my beat sheet for it, but then like I'm looking at Act 2A right now and I'm like, what's supposed to go in here? I don't know. <laughs> I'm like the, the vampire gets back with her old family and she plays some music. That's not very exciting. There's no tension in that. So so I always struggle with that because Act 2A feels like a, a one-line great idea, and then you have to turn that one-line great idea into like 25,000 words of, of really interesting conflict. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Hopefully, whatever I said about here and now and then will help uh, other people who are struggling with it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I always love uh, kind of getting different takes on things, especially uh, like I can read through the save the cat sheet and I wouldn't necessarily realize that that might be such a challenging part. So I appreciate your input on that. Yeah. So we've talked about some of your other books, but you're here for the latest and greatest. We could be heroes. So uh, do you have kind of a elevator pitch for us? Sure. Yeah. We could be heroes is about um, a superhero and a supervillain who accidentally meet up in an anonymous support group and they discover each other's secret identities and they decide that rather than fight each other, they're much better off as friends. And as friends, they realize that they both have this missing piece of their own um, personal history. Like they, they both woke up one day several years ago without knowing who they are, without having any past memories, but they suddenly had superpowers. So they take this budding friendship and they decide to that they're going to work together and uncover how they became the people that they are. It's, it's a, the main theme really is nature versus nurture. Um, oh, so, okay, let's talk about Act 2A. Why was Act 2A hard to write for this book? Um, so the 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 setup is the superhero and the supervillain that you so act one establishes who they are as characters and how they meet and then you break into act 2a when they decide like we're going to be friends and we're going to work together so then at the midpoint the story has to turn on its head but that means from between act 2a and the midpoint they have to work together like that's the promise of the premise is a superhero and a supervillain are friends and decide to work together. What are they going to do when they work together? Well, that that's much harder to break down. Like I actually, you know, that's where you have to create these scenarios where like this friendship that's building, like it has to build and it has to uncover plot stakes at the same time. Like whatever they're building towards um, both from a character and from a plot perspective, it has to make sense and it has to be fun and it has to be interesting. So I think that's why it, it's, it's hard because there's a lot of ways to slot in there, but they don't always make sense for the character or the plot. Um, you don't want the plot to just kind of be a bullet list of these things happen. And you don't, and you also want it to make sense for the character. So um, yeah, that's my tangent. On, <laughs> I, I was uh, invited to speak to a community college class on, uh, uh, creative writing, just like my experience in publishing. And I wound up doing like a whole whiteboard on the save the cat beat sheet and like breaking it down into like what the different pieces were and talking <laughs> about act 2A. And then the teacher came up to me afterwards. She's like, Oh, thanks for that. You taught my entire next week's lesson for me. So, so if anyone has, is, if anyone's listening <laughs> about, um, listening to this and has questions about uh, save the cat and plot structure, um, feel free to message me on Twitter. Like I, I, I don't mind talking about it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so I definitely, uh, We Could Be Heroes is one of those books where I didn't realize this about myself until this year, I guess, is that I don't really read the uh, synopsis on the back of books before I read them. I kind of just like have a vague idea of the pitch. I'm like, that sounds amazing. Like, let's go in. So I knew that it was a hero and supervillain meet up in like a support group, but I didn't know that they become friends or that they work together or any of that. And oh, so cool. that happened. I was like, whoa, like, total curveball <laughs> like this is not what i was expecting i really wanted to just kind of invert people's expectations of of the superhero genre i mean we are so 
inundated with superhero media these days and and i adore it i mean like legends of tomorrow is like my favorite show on tv ah, such a good show um, <laughs> it's such an amazing show and i i always like my bar for zoe and jamie from we could be heroes was like would they fit in with the legends of tomorrow and they totally would like they would just be on there like messing up everything <laughs> with the legends um but i so I wanted to write a friendship book. That was really, really important to me because um, I, I think it's underrepresented in, in media. And I wanted to write a very grounded superhero story. Like I, I, because I always appreciate it when, when it feels like the hero is flawed and the villain is kind of good. And we're seeing more of that, but I think it always still kind of turns in Act 3 for those stories where like the villain just doubles down on being evil. And the villain is just like, you know, lawful good. Um, I think one of the really like the best examples of like when that's done well, uh, Black Panther is just like so amazing on, on so many levels, but like it really gets the villain right. Where like you really understand where Killmonger is coming from and you can totally see what he's doing and it makes sense. And then he just goes a little bit over the edge. And I, I think a lot of superhero media doesn't quite walk that balance that right way. But anyways, I wanted to play with those tropes, but then push them like into even further in reality where it's like, okay, let's meet the, the people, like really meet the people behind it and put them in like low stakes superhero situations. So like, this isn't necessarily about like, you know, the, <laughs> this isn't Thanos destroying the universe. This is, this is just two people kind of bumbling into each other and uh, so, so that was important. It was just I, I really wanted to use this this setup of powered people and strip back into like a nature versus nurture situation about like could they be friends and what what does it take to build friendship and to build trust and that, that was really important to me. Yeah, and I think uh, and again I'm gonna reveal how ignorant of science fiction television I am, but I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who. Uh, but I believe you're a fan and the show may have had some influence on the book. Um, more on a very superficial level. So um, here and now and then my time travel book had a lot of influence from from a specific Doctor Who episode. Um, this one's more just like the characters are named after um, classic like 1970s Doctor Who <laughs> characters. So, so um, Zoe and Jamie are named after the second Doctor's companions. Zoe, the like kick-ass scientist woman in the cat suit, and Jamie, the like Scottish Highlander um, who wears a kilt. Um, and then like the other characters are all like nods to, to different Doctor Who um, characters. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's not thematic and it's not plot driven. It's strictly like when I name characters, I am really bad at naming characters. So I tend to just pick a theme for a particular book and, and I name the characters after that. So in my, my second book, A Beginning at the End, almost all of the characters are named after um early 90s indie rock musicians and then so uh, when i first wrote that book i never thought any of them would actually read it and then i became like social media friendly with one of the musicians on there and and she had first read here and now and then and and she messaged me about it and then i'm like let me warn you about my second book coming up because i don't want you to think it's weird <laughs> but she said it was very flattering and very cool so um so yeah, I just, I picked something. So like my upcoming, um, my fourth book coming out a year from now 
It's called Second Contact, and it's a very X-Files-inspired family drama. And all the characters there are named after Assassin's Creed characters. So I'm very shameless in in doing it. It's just, it makes things easier for me. And it's a little bit of my own, like, uh, you know, self-amusement. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever talked to someone at this point who's like, you know what, naming characters is the easiest thing ever. Like, it's no trouble at all. So, like, it's really cool that you have a theme behind it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's so much easier because, like, I worry about, like, if when when you're naming characters on your own, I worry about, like, do I know anyone with that name? Like, am I going to offend anyone? Like, you know, is there good diversity in, like, how they sound? You know, so you don't have, you don't want people's names to sound too similar. You have to have a good rhythm to it. And it's just like, oh, no, it's just so much easier to take, like, um, you know, the cast of this or, or like characters from this thing that I love. And I try to make it, um, I try to make it a, like obscure enough that it's not like too obvious. Like, so I'm not going to write a book where the characters are named like Han Solo and, and Leo Organa, but, but I can, I can do something where, um, like if you know it, it's a nice little wink to, to that fandom. Like I actually got some messages from, from uh, a beginning at the end where people would like comment about, you know, they like the book. And then they also said like, Oh, as a, as a music nerd, I really appreciated the shout outs too. So it's like, it is a little subculture of people like got it and appreciated it, but it wasn't so obvious that it was annoying. Well, I do kind of want to circle back a little bit on something you said earlier with like the best villains kind of having a bit of good in them, because I know that uh, we could be heroes. The villain is kind of rooted in empathy and intelligence rather than like world domination or anything. Uh, And I think I've seen pretty of intelligent villains before, but the empathy angle is one that's a little less common. So why that approach? I, I think it's important if you're going to spend time with a character to to really understand them. And like, unfortunately, our real world has uncovered a lot of you know real villains who have no empathy. But I would say for the most part, most people do have some some level of empathy. And so I wanted to show with Jamie that he's a good person. Like, and and he's very thoughtful in how he robs banks because he's. He's robbing like big, he justifies it as he's robbing big faceless corporations that are insured by the FDIC. So he doesn't feel like he's necessarily hurting anyone with it. And he does his bank robberies in a way that like no one really gets hurt physically. And it gives the media something to talk about. It gives like the city something to talk about. And then he gets his income and he's allowed to, you know, to to buy groceries and buy cat food and he's a really good cat owner and he always returns his library books on time like and those are fun little character points that like i i really wanted to emphasize because he's very lawful good in while still being a supervillain. um and i thought it's just it's more fun to take your expectations like even in the first chapter you see like it, it enters with him it starts with the bank robbery and like the first, you know, three or four pages is very super villainy. He's like, you know, he's like stunning people. So like, and so they can't move. And then he's like peering into people's heads and he's like, you know, cackling like an idiot. And then something goes wrong. And then you start to see him panic. And then you like all of these defenses and layers break down. And you realize it's just an act. He's really just a person underneath, and and he's a good person, uh, and he's worried about what he's done, and, and I think like we just we don't see too many villains 
like that. Usually the villains that we encounter are like fully invested in who they are. And you don't have, uh, I, I thought it was interesting for it to just be a job for him. It's a job that he dresses up for and he puts on, you know, an act for just like, you know, like when, when I was working retail, you know, I would put on my blockbuster video polo shirt and I assumed the persona of a blockbuster employee. And I was happy to see my customers, even though I really hated them. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just a job for him. And I thought that was a fun way to, to approach a supervillain. Yeah, and I guess uh, speaking of him being a good cat owner, there's another cameo name there because don't you also have a cat named Normal? I have a cat named Normal, and so the cat in is a Jamie's cat, and we could be heroes is named Normal. And originally, like in the early early draft, I called it Normal. Also, like because it, it's physically modeled after my cat, and it has the same mannerisms, and it's basically like my cat in the book. And then, I, and then I worried that, like, you know, the the because the name Nermal comes from the Garfield comic. It's like Garfield's annoying neighbor, and so I, I just worried that might create problems. So I I just changed it to Normal, which kind of fit um, because when I started to hit like the second draft of the book, it's like, you know, the appearance of normalcy is something that that both Jamie and Zoe really deal with. So it, it kind of fit thematically for like Jamie would name his cat normal because that's what he struggles with is trying to live a normal life yeah i definitely appreciated the cat uh moving on so you've also said that you intentionally avoided writing a romance between jamie and zoe uh so why is that um it's it really simple is i just wanted i wanted them to be friends i think that's just really really important to see in media i think as a society we don't necessarily place enough value on friendship. And I think we don't also, um, like everything is about ships, you know? Uh, it, it feels like anytime we see something, you know, people are like, oh, I ship this character with that character. And, uh, uh, you know, the real world doesn't work that way. Um, our world is based, is built on on friendships. And, and I would like to see that a little bit more reflected on in, in media. Um, and so I really wanted to show how difficult it could be to to like build trust into a lasting friendship and to make that sustain, but also the value of it, um, because, you know, romantic relationships can often run shorter than good friendships. Um, and, and I think like we just, you know, there's just importance in that, and especially in two people who could on paper be romantically linked. Um, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, most of my friends are women and I have no interest in dating them, you know, and I, you know, very happy with, like, even before I met my wife, it was like, you know, I always knew like, these are the friends that are, they're my friends. And like, I will, we have no romantic interest in each other and it's never going to be that way. It's just, just fine. We're, we support each other through our friendship. And, and I, I just wanted to see more of that reflected in media. I can definitely have a hard time coming up with like maybe more than books on like one or two hands that have like really solid friendship themes rather than like going the romance angle. So yeah. it's definitely something I appreciated. Yeah, I, I, I did. Like I, I considered it early on, but my I, I talked about it with my critique partner. Um, I had sent her the first half. Um, just to get her take on like, is this working for you? And I asked her like, do you ship them? 
And like, I knew in my head that like, I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to see what kind of vibe she was getting. Uh, and I sent it to two people actually. And one person said, yes, I, I basically just want them to bang <laughs> by the end. And the other one said like, I kind of like them where they are. And like, but my gut was always like, I like them where they are. And so there's a very, there's a very important point at the end of act two a where, where like, they just kind of realize like, this is fun. This is good. You know, we're happy where we are. Um, and there's no need to push it further. And I, and I wanted to set that I wanted to say that explicitly in the first half of the book so that there's not false expectations in the second half of the book. Well, so one of the overall central questions that I got out of We Could Be Heroes is who we would be if we could just blank slate ourselves. Uh, and we get to see that play out for both Zoe and Jamie, since like you said, they don't have their memories. Uh, but I want to turn the question on you. So, uh, Mike. Who do you think you would be if you suddenly woke up with no memory of who you were, the proverbial blank slate? I, I have thought about this quite a bit. Um, I realize a lot of uh, all my books have touched on this in some degree because in, in in here and now and then, Ken kind of deals with this in the beginning, like because uh, as a time traveler, he's starting to lose his his previous memories, and the logic in that book is that the human brain isn't supposed to be able to process two time periods at one time. So he deals with it a little bit. And um, in a beginning at the end, it's more of a conscious decision of people using the, the the pandemic to reset their lives once the world has started to rebuild, like just running away from their, their, their previous existences. And then this one is like a literal memory wipe. I, I would hope I'm still a good person. <laughs> I think I've... Um, my parents tell me that like... I uh, have had like an innate curiosity since I was, since I was young. And I think that will, um, I see that in my daughter now too. And, and I see like, I see how she asks questions in ways that some of her classmates don't. So I think like there's a little bit of that that's just like built into that's who she is. So I think I would be doing something creative. I would still be asking a lot of questions and trying to figure out why why creativity works. I don't know if I would necessarily be a writer because I have interest in, you know, acting and, and music, even though like I haven't really done much of that in, in the past 10 to 20 years, but maybe I would go down one of those paths. Um, but I think I would definitely still be creative, but still be very grounded and practical too. <laughs> um, well, any future projects you can tell us about anything you have coming up? Um, so, okay, so this comes out January 26th, um, and then the next book is called Second Contact, and that is about uh, a family who, uh, 15 years ago, one of the three siblings was abducted by aliens, or so they, they think, they're not sure, and that fact splinters the family apart, and then 15 years later, we see the fallout from that when the abducted brother returns and claims that he's been fighting an intergalactic war for the past 15 years. And um, the sisters who have undergone like the trauma of their family splitting apart and assuming their brother is dead and their father dying in an accident because of this, they all have to start to put together what actually happened and what is actually important to their family. So um, I, I tell people that it's kind of like 
an X-Files episode if it, the X-Files did not have Mulder and Scully in it. If it like focused on the family in the middle of the, <laughs> the family that Mulder and Scully are investigating. Um, so that comes out January 2022, assuming we all live <laughs> that long <laughs> and survive. And then we just we just announced um, uh, the next two book contract. Um, so the the first book of that is called Vampire Weekend, and it's about um, it's about a vampire punk rocker who uh, has uh, avoided her family for decades, but then winds up reconnecting with her long lost grandnephew and bonding with him over music, uh, over the trauma of his life. And so that's in very early stages of drafting. I, I don't know where it's going to go just yet, but I, I really love my main character so far. So that's good. Um, and then a year after that, another book will come out. I have no idea what that is <laughs> yet. <laughs> There's just a pressure of like, gotcha. I'm going to have a deadline <laughs> in about two years and I have to come up with a hundred thousand words for it. So, uh, yeah, so that's what I have coming up right now. Yep. You got to get through the next couple of projects first. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think also uh, there's a upcoming or maybe it's already out anthology that you'll be in. I think it's uh, Don't Touch That. Oh, that's right. The, so um, myself and Kena Roberts, who wrote a um, a bonkers <laughs> memoir about growing up in <laughs> in like basically a jungle um, called Wildlife. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> K.A. Dorr, who wrote a trilogy uh, was called The... Um, I forget the the specific name for it, but the first book is The Perfect Assassin. Um, and it's about assassins. It's really cool. Um, so we are all parents of young children. And um, there was a, a Twitter prompt about like, boy, it'd be really great if someone wrote, uh, put together an anthology of short stories about like parenting and science fiction. And so we ran with it and we did a Kickstarter for it. There's not really a schedule for it. Like right now, the all of the, the, the main authors have turned in their stories and we're just kind of doing the edit process right now. And we're sifting through these, the slush pile because we opened it up to general submissions. So I don't know when this is actually going to, to come out. I mean, probably like mid 2021 is my guess because we're just pushing through editorial, uh, right now. But, um, we admit to each other that like, editorial and reading the slush pile has actually been slower than anticipated because 2020 is the worst year. <laughs> actually, I just messaged Kina and, and uh, Kai uh, yesterday where I said, like, I am totally behind on reading slush because like trying to do Christmas without any help from family for like a six year old and working at the same time, like I'm behind, <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I think we're all a little behind on that, but it, it will come out sometime in 2021. Yeah. Well, looking forward to it. I did back the Kickstarter, so I can't wait to dig in. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's an inter interesting topic that uh, I hadn't really seen much before. So, yeah, looking forward to getting a variety of takes on it. Having read some of the stories, it's it's really cool how how different authors uh, are integrating <clears throat> the the ideas of like you know raising children or or like being with children or like you know the weight of having to like pass on knowledge to children, but then like frame it in in science fiction tropes. I think that it's I. I can't really think of a collection out there that's going to be like this. So I think it's it's really going to be fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, are there any books that you enjoy and you'd recommend? Um, 
I just finished Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots. Uh, um, and we, Hench is like the other superhero story of the season. Um, actually, it's funny because I, I got a review um, from a reader that said uh, uh, that they, they thought We Could Be Heroes was like as funny as Hench, but a lot more wholesome. And I sent that to Natalie and she, we had a good laugh about that because her book is, uh, her, her book is about someone who's a, a henchman for super villains and also a big data analyst. So she takes all the data about superheroes and calculates how destructive they actually are. Um, and then the story just kind of takes off from there. And so hers is, <laughs> so it's a very, very unique take on it. It's really funny. Um, but it's definitely uh, a lot less wholesome <laughs> than my book. But we, like we've been, we wound up in like different panels and stuff together because we are like the superhero books of the season. So I, I just finished that a few weeks ago. I on my nightstand is the the Once in the Future Witches by Alex Harrow. Um, I her book The Ten Thousand Doors of January was like my favorite book in 2019. And like I tell Alex, that's a very significant you know, um, category to be in because 2019 had so many good books, but, um, her book just like hit, it, it hit all of the, the buttons for, for me, like specifically between like plotting and character and prose and like just enough, you know, science fiction fantasy elements, but still a character family story. So like that, I'm really looking forward to, to once in the future, which is, I just have not had time to, to read it. So, uh, oh, shout out to, um, if you do pick up the Star Wars anthology that I'm in, I highly encourage you to get the audio version, because even if you don't normally listen to audiobooks, a lot of it is performed um, almost like an audio drama. There's like sound effects and music from the Star Wars score in there. And my story, so mine's a Palpatine story, and it's uh, narrated by Sam Witwer, who does the voice of Darth Maul. In the Clone Wars, he did the voice of Palpatine for for Rebels and The Force Unleashed. Um, so he, he's an accomplished voice actor in addition to being a screen actor. But he did such an amazing job with 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 my story. Like my editor joked, he said it sounds like Darth Maul is reading Palpatine's diary. Like so, it's like it's just very evil the way that he narrated it. So if you do check that out, please please check out the audiobook. There's a sample of that chapter. If you Google uh, SoundCloud Disturbance, which is the name of the story, Sam Witwer, you'll hear like a, I think, 13-minute sample uh, of the story. Gotcha. Uh, Well, one way I like to kind of close out these interviews is just asking, what's one thing you're excited about right now? (sighs) The inauguration (laughs) in January 2021. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I look forward to waking up and not having to check like my daily like reporter Twitter feeds about like what terrible thing like the president is trying to do to murder all of us on a daily basis. Um, I, I, my wife joked that, that we should get an advent calendar specifically leading up to the inauguration. <laughs> so I guess that's like from, <laughs> from a big picture perspective, like that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, from a more fun perspective, um, let me think. Um, God, it's it's hard being excited about stuff right now because the world is so terrible. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think I'm just 
I want to be excited about stuff again. We'll put it that way. I am looking forward to to the pandemic coming to an end. Like actually, I my wife's stepmom, who we're really good friends with, told us that she's a nurse and she just got her vaccination uh, two days ago. And, and so to to have like that in like immediate family is like makes the whole thing much more tangible. That like this is actually happening. Like I, I've had other people that I talk to on social media say like, oh yeah, like I know so and so who who actually got vaccinated, but to actually have family that we talk to regularly, like undergo that process because they're a healthcare worker. I am really looking forward to, to that, to, to my daughter going back to school with kids. So I can think during the day <laughs> again, um, to, to book cons and, and geek cons and, um, seeing friends and family and, and living life in a context where I can be super excited about a TV show and like that feels okay and not self-indulgent because the world is terrible. <laughs> so I'll put it that way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A strong second on all of those. <laughs> um, well, I think that pretty much wraps up everything I have for you. So Mike Chen, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. You can find Mike Chen on Twitter as Mike Chen Writer or at his website, MikeChenBooks.com. We Could Be Heroes cements Mike's status as the sci-fi with feels guy, offering much to love for character readers and superhero fans alike. As always, you can find us over at TheFantasyN.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so, so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch up on all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.